Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View, of course. I'm Adam Wilder, along with Curtis McGiffin and Jim Petrosky. Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get into the show and our topic today, we just wanted to remember all of those who lost their lives in the recent attacks in Israel and to share that, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with those um, who have lost their lives and those who may potentially lose their lives in the fight that is yet to come. And hopefully, there will be as little additional loss of innocent life on both sides in the days and weeks ahead. Now, gentlemen, with that sort of heavy introduction, that's sort you know, it's something that we've all been thinking about uh, over the last few days. And I think probably at some point in the future, when we have a better grasp on exactly what happened, how Israel responds, and, you know, potentially the effectiveness of it, we should probably do a podcast talking about, you know, deterrence, you know, where it may have failed and how it may be reestablished here. But for today, we want to talk about a totally different topic. And that, of course, in foreign affairs, there was a recently published article called The U.S. Nuclear Arsenal Can Deter Both China and Russia, Why America Doesn't Need More Nuclear Missiles. And that was by Charles Glazer, James Acton, and Steve Fetter. And the article, it basically says, well, you know, we recognize that Russia has expanded its arsenal, particularly its low-yield arsenal, its, you know, theater weapons. We uh, recognize that China is dramatically expanding its arsenal. You know, it's got 300-plus additional ICBM silos, and it's expanding its, you know, SSBNs, and it's building new bombers, and that China seeks parity with the United States and that this is risky, but we don't think the United States needs to expand its arsenal to maintain the same level of deterrence that it has now or, you know, had five years ago, 10 years ago, that none of that's necessary, that the the main problem is that the United States has long held a counter value targeting strategy and that that counter value targeting strategy would would drive the numbers required to maintain deterrence up but that's not you know the proper strategy and you know they don't quite say we want a counter value targeting strategy but that's essentially you know the argument and they say you know it, We just, you know, we, the United States, can maintain deterrence without adding any additional nuclear weapons, and that to add them would lead to an arms race, and 
you know, it would, I mean, there's, it's a foregone conclusion. It'll be arms racing and, and it's a foregone conclusion that arms racing is bad. And that will be less secure if there's an arms race. These are all foregone conclusions for which they offer really no evidence. So, you know, I think for me, I had a very, you know, uh, negative response to this, to this article. And I, you know, probably said a few words I shouldn't say here, but I wanted to know what, what you guys thought of the piece. What was your reaction? How did you read it? Am I reading it wrong, Curtis? Hey, uh, welcome everybody. Um, you know, I, I read this piece uh, as well, and I probably said a few four letter words as well. Um, uh, and I was forced to use the F word, Farfagnukin, uh, as I uh, read <laughs> through this. Um, so my first, my first glance at this piece is this is yet again, the disarmament community or the minimalist community bending themselves into pretzels, trying to ensure that the, the world as it presents itself does not force um, what should be the inevitable. And that is uh, that the U S may have to add nuclear weapons and reverse this trend in, uh, of, of decline that, um, not only have we been seeing, but that the world has hoped for since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and, and to your point, Adam, I, I saw very little fact-based evidence in this article. In fact, there is a, uh, it refers to, you know, the very fine study by Brad Roberts and Lawrence Livermore and their team that came out back in spring uh, in this study, uh, China's emergence as a second nuclear peer implications for U.S. nuclear deterrent strategy, uh, which basically came out and said, hey, the U.S. might need to add weapons uh, in order to hold both of these nations um, at, at risk. And this is largely because of a counterforce strategy where we need more numbers to hold all of those new missile silos at risk. Um, there is a companion piece, uh, accidentally, um, that John Harvey put out as well a few days ago that really gets after this question um, uh, called um, Meeting the Challenge of Deterring Two Nuclear Peers. Uh, John Harvey writes a fantastic piece where he he, he kind of looks at this idea and saying, well, look, if you're talking about China or at 1,550 or upwards of you know, of more, it could be more than that. And a Russia at 1,550 warheads. Um, if you're just trying to deter one or the other, you're okay as we stand in our force posture. But the reality is, is that these two nations are forming some sort of arrangement. Maybe it's not quite an alliance, but they call it a no limits partnership uh, or a no limits agreement. And this begs the opportunity that we have to um, plan for the possibility that we may have to deter them together at the same time. And if you're going to follow a counterforce strategy, you're going to need more numbers. And uh, and unfortunately for uh, the writers here, uh, Glazer, Acton, and Fetter, I think the Lawrence Livermore study actually provides a lot more proof uh, to support the idea that that the more numbers are needed 
and this idea that status quo will still work. It just simply doesn't compute when your adversary or adversaries, plural, double the, the, uh, the, the target capacities and what they can hold you at risk, that, that if you remain the same, that deterrence will remain the same. It just doesn't hold. So, so first of all, look, I, I, I think the two of you are incorrect. I don't think there's, there's this, this whole article is so bad. It gives us a lot of fodder to work with. In fact, it's five pages of stuff put together to talk about minimalizing our nuclear force and my, you know, my view of this and how we can reduce it. And I'm going to pick up, take a few of these pieces apart, but it is a fairly long article. In fact, I was reading it on my Mac pro and I ended up running out of battery by the time I got to the end of it. Cause I'm a slow reader. So, you know, that's the first step. And, and so there's a lot here, but it's hard to unpack. Sorry, Jim. Did, did you, I, I misheard you. Did you say you were slow? Is that what you said? That's precisely what I said. I'm a slow <laughs> reader. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, but I'm pretty quick <laughs> on the uptake there, Adam. So that's good. Okay. So let me, let me pick a couple things out first of all. And I find it interesting because they talk about counter value and they talk about counter force and they say, well, if you have so many for counter value, if you have so many counter force, as long as you know, you're going to hit a target and it's going to be devastating, then you're okay. Well, you know, if, if, if you make that argument, then you only need one nuclear weapon to make it through and we're done right and everyone would be good and i mean if you take that to its you know end conclusion that doesn't make any sense and in fact in the article this is what i got excited when i read this because i read this and said what in the world are are we going to get to the end here and i again i started out by saying good article okay because it makes you think which is the right strategy? Which is the right approach? But the, the article starts out and uh, pointing to Curtis's end, where it says, even if even if um, Russia and China launch simultaneous large scale nuclear strikes on U.S. nuclear forces, the United States would be able to use its surviving nuclear uh, weapons to inflict massive damage on both countries. Each would suffer essentially as much damage as it had been by the United States, only one adversary. So you're saying if I hit you with 10 nuclear weapons and you make me to divide them as five and five, that those five are going to inflict the same damage as 10. I mean, this is ludicrous. Okay, this doesn't make sense. Okay. And so even in that just simple posit up front, one sees that, you know, there's there's some pieces in this article that really don't make a lot of sense. The question I have and what we started with, and, and three of us talked a little bit earlier, I think, in a, one of our operations meetings, we started talking about this article. And the answer is, are we in a three, you know, is this a three-body problem or is this a two-body problem, us and them? I don't know. But if you think of China and Russia as a single entity, then the argument you might make is we need to have at least enough weapons to deter them, okay, the together. That sort of makes a lot of sense. How we do that may be different depending on the country's reaction in terms of their force and their, you know, um, uh, their commitment to their citizens. Both of those are interesting. I'm going to give this back to Curtis, but I'm sort of wound up now. I want to, I have another thought to bring out, but uh, go ahead, Curtis. Well, easy, big fella. So <laughs> let me just add to that uh, thought that you had. So taking your analogy, <clears throat> if you're, if you're deterred by the 10 weapons that you just described, and that is um, fearful enough that that makes you say, yet not today, every day, every day, every day, every day. And now you've just cut those numbers from 10 to five. Are you as fearful 
of what is what is awaiting you in that is you know if you will in retribution that 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 deterrent threat and the answer is probably not because as you as that risk drops so you cut that risk in half given your example there now all of a sudden those smaller numbers that you are now being held at risk with become more you become more risk tolerant. Hey, I think I could withstand those five explosions. I couldn't handle 10. That's too much. But five might be worth doing whatever it is I want to do. And that to me is detrimental to deterrence. And, and, and so when you allow your numbers to become to, when you allow your numbers in comparison to become smaller than your adversary, then all of a sudden your adversary is not fearful of that threat. Curtis, thank you for walking the, the, the listeners, the, the walking the dog for the listeners here. You're right. In that simple example, you can see how this starts to fall apart. And then you have to ask, you know, you go back to the 10 to five. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a scientist, but I like simple numbers. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, you go from this 10 to five, what are your options with just those five nuclear weapons? Cause now if I'm counter value or counter force, how do I prevent the 10 targets I originally thought I needed when I only have five options? You've, you've cornered yourself into this sort of make believe world. You need to have exactly. enough fear in, in that end. Let me, let me go another place that I know Curtis is just going to jump on. If you've listened to our previous podcast and I recommend all our listeners go back and listen, cause you start hearing the personalities of people. Here is Curtis uh, here, here, Curtis, I'm going to give you another piece. The other one is what is the messaging we have when we are not continuing with our capability to produce nuclear weapons and make them so that we can design them or at least produce them to meet any new challenges. Because remember, the people that are building those, that's an atrophy of technology. It's an atrophy of capability. It's an atrophy of knowledge. So what do we tell people when we say, uh, we'll just let it go. I believe we did this once before. I don't know. On about what, 1992, I think. And then peace broke so. out, right? Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> I, I don't know that I can bite on that. I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, obviously, maybe the uh, maybe the the writers are are less are less fearful of an American expansion in numbers uh, as much as they are fearful of an American expansion in pit production, you know, or or something along those lines. Um, so, anywho, Adam, what are your thoughts on that? You know. Having written, you know, myself and uh, Derek Williams wrote an article a few months back, and I think it was July, that challenged in uh, a War on the Rocks piece that by a couple of, you know, an undergraduate and a professor that, you know, talked about how do you operate uh, ICBMs. And one of the things that I find so difficult with many of these types of articles that are written by, you know, in this case, academics and, you know, an arms control guy is that they don't really understand operations. And so when it comes to nuclear, everybody loves to, to, you know, be a strategist and being a strategist doesn't require really any knowledge of how things actually work. It's sort of, you know, all pie in the sky stuff, but you actually have to operate a nuclear arsenal. 
And you have to have, you know, for us, it's a triad. It's, we have an NC3 system. We have a way that we would operate. We have targeting. We have very specific ways that we do things. And so when you sort of broad brush, you know, and you say, well, you know, if they launch on you, you'll, you'll have a sure, you'll have all these other ones. Cause there's, you know, there's SSBNs in the ocean. Well, it, it doesn't just work that way. You can't just broad brush everything and you can't just assume that the Russians or the Chinese are going to do things the way that you want. And they never try. And this is a persistent problem with all of these types of articles is they almost presume that everything's a zero sum game and that nobody's going to do anything different or come up with an alternative or, you know, that the Russians and the Chinese are not going to come up with, you know, passive sonar or with uh, high-performance computing that allows them to track uh, SSBNs or with, you know, small UUVs with a, you know, that can track an SSBN as it leaves port. I mean, we've talked, I've talked about this many times over the last 15 years. SSBNs are not the cure-all that people think they are. They have been tracked. We have had collisions uh, they're, you know, they're becoming increasingly less this secure leg of the triad that they once were, and they weren't even all that secure in the past, but, but yet we're going to, we're just sort of going to hand wave and we're, you know, it's the, you know, it's a, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for kind of, you know, these are not threats that you're looking for. And so the idea it's what it really matters is how do you operate a nuclear arsenal? You know, how would this actually take place? How would any conflict actually take place? What would be the probability of kill? What would be, you know, what capabilities could be developed? Like, for example, you know, Zach Callenborn and I have been talking about, well, how could you use, uh, how could you use, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, with small munitions to hunt and destroy mobile ICBMs? How can you do all sorts of unique things to destroy capability, to minimize the effectiveness of an arsenal? And the the simple fact is the way they describe how things are going to work in this, it just doesn't work that way. We we don't operate that way. We've never operated that way. And it, you know, it, they're sort of, hey, this will be a problem. Like, for example, I want to know, you know, arms racing. I want an, I would much rather arms race than fight a war. And the way you fight wars is you create doubt and uncertainty. That's right. That is right. That's what leads to wars. When, if, you know, go back to Israel, the reason Hamas attacked now is because they perceived Israel was in a weakened state, that there was internal, you know, turmoil because of all that's been going on over the judicial reform. And it's, it's been a period of turmoil. And it was like, this is a good time to strike. And so adversaries look for weakness. And when you have arms racing, you tend not to get wars. They don't lead to war. They det- especially nuclear arms. They deter it. And the, one of the greatest example is, and you know, this is something that's in Tom Ramos's book is when we had, the, the early SSBNs, 
in you know 1961, and there was the Berlin crisis in which Khrushchev said, in six months, we're taking Berlin. You better be out. And Kennedy said, I'm not, I am not giving up Berlin. And he said, we're going to, we're going to have thermonuclear war. And the only reason Khrushchev did not go was because he knew that Kennedy had SSBNs and he did not. Kennedy had a capability he didn't have. Kennedy had a superior capability. So this idea that, well, the fact that you can strike cities possibly if they can't, you know, knock them down, that that's good enough and that'll always work. Well, that's not what history says. History says the opposite. This is something that, that uh, you know, Matt uh, Kronig has written about. And I just, yeah. what they're, it's, it lacks an operational understanding. It lacks a historical understanding. It's a bunch of idealism and idealism gets people killed. Yes, it does. Yeah. I, Adam I, and, and Curtis, you, you and Adam both and a great commentary there, Adam on, on, on this piece here. But, you know, as I read this, this piece itself, you know, and, and looking at the, the focus on the, the two decisions, counterforce, you know, um, counterforce and countervalue and, uh, um, and saw that false decision making in that could lead you only to two decisions and every war is fluid. Things change. But I want to go back and just look at this because I do think there's a piece of this in this you know, three body problem. And I'm a physicist, so I like the three body problem argument because it makes a little bit of sense to me. But I'll, I'll throw the first piece in because I'm, I'm interested in your opinions. I always thought of Russia as having sort of a counterforce view of fighting. And I look at China as being a counter value kind of fighting. And so that does present us with a dilemma in strategy in terms of how we fight. Okay. And I was curious what your thoughts are, because when you have those two, you have to have a flexible way of looking at your deterrence theory against those. And I was curious what the, what you guys thought on that. Well, let me give, uh, give you a, an opinion here. Um, so I agree with you. There's a confusion here in this piece about countervalue and counterforce. And what is America always has? America professes to be a counterforce um, strategy. Um, Acknowledging uh, that lots of civilians are going to die because some of exactly. the, you know, some of the war support things that will be struck will also kill civilians. Correct. Correct. And then that, that was enough. Right. And that the hope was that if we, if we weren't openly counter value, which violates our ethics and our law of armed conflict, if we weren't openly targeting civilians and cities, the hope was that the Soviets wouldn't do it either. Okay. And we still hope these things today. Now I'm not so sure that that isn't a misplaced hope. Um, but in any case, it is definitely, um, it, it in my opinion, you know, well-placed hope is a strategy sort of uh, formulate measurement here, which we know isn't good. But, uh, but our, our authors here, you know, struggle to come up with a replacement, right? And so they say, and they don't really give it a name, uh, which is, uh, it's kind of a miss here, but they, they say, we're really, what we should do is we should target the adversary's society and infrastructure. Well, it sounds like value and counterforce at the same time, right? But, you know, 
then they define it, right? Economic um, and industrial infrastructure, including energy and communication systems, ports and transportation modes, right? All the things that essentially starve a nation, right? We've had studies here in America that a massive EMP attack doesn't kill anybody on day one, but within nine months, it kills 90% of the population, right? You starve them all to death. Um, and deprive them of, of all of those things. And, and if, we're, if we're talking about infrastructure, what do you think happens? Uh, what do our authors think happens if we target the Three Gorges Dam at the top of the Yangtze River? Right. I think if you destroy that piece of infrastructure, uh, that is one of the things that sort of nullifies the no first use uh, argument, um, if you will, on, um, uh, on China's behalf. Um, that is something that has a potential uh, to do uh, to do a lot of damage, and I'd like to carry that analogy, you know, one more uh, a little bit differently. How would our authors feel if if the PLARF, the People's Liberation Army um, rocket force, uh, drops a couple of warheads uh, at the top of Mount Hood in the Oregonian Cascade Mountain Range, right? As a as a, just to sort of warn us. Um, how would that, how would that go? Or perhaps maybe they decide to blow up solar star, the, the nation's largest solar farm in California. That's an energy infrastructure that chances are, uh, our, our, you know, our electric car driver, uh, 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 brethren would, would, would have a problem with, um, would we not respond to that? Would that not be something that, uh, that would be a, a problem. The, the point here is, is that you can call you can call it whatever you want. If you start nuking infrastructure or or a society, you have committed a counterforce or countervalue targeting issue, and you better have enough to carry it through. Well, one of the challenges that I see with it is, so they say, you know, a, a, and I'm quoting, a small attack against an isolated industrial target would, like a small counterforce attack, inflict relatively little damage, but it would send a clear signal by emphasizing that the use of nuclear weapons is about bargaining by inflicting cost, not destroying opposing forces in order to limit damage and thereby win a war. And this is problematic because this is the same trap that Thomas Schelling fell into where he thought nuclear war was all about bargaining. And because he was an economist who was a game theorist, he saw all things in terms of bargaining. And the reality is, is that sometimes you just have to plan a, plan a war and fight it to win it. And I always worry about people who don't see nuclear war fighting as war fighting and, and, for the sole purpose of war winning. Because if you really want to be effective at deterring somebody, you have to plan to fight and win a war, even with nuclear weapons. Adam, Absolutely. one of the other things that nuclear weapons, uh, from the standpoint of just their inherent nature, is you start the war with what you have. That's, you know, so if you get drawn out or you, you, you use everything you have, you're done. You, you, you're not going to produce, you know, and, you know, in 30 days, a bunch of new nuclear weapons, they're not going to be there. And that's another piece that really bothers me when we start talking about limitations, because you have what you have, and there's no other piece of this. And so when we look at that three body problem, I, I, I like, as you know, I like turning things on their head. So 
What do you think would be the response if China began to reduce their nuclear arsenal? Do you think Russia is going to start reducing theirs? Because after all, that's what we think is going to be the response, right? There's no nuclear, you know, there's no nuclear arms race. They've reduced. Everyone will reduce. Is that the way it's really going to happen? Or we don't continue to increase, so they're not going to continue to increase? Let's um, let's think of that problem that way. Well, and that I, leads to the sort of the way you were talking about the military, you know, the military planners. You've got to plan through that. I think you got it right earlier when you said you you basically said, well, do we have a two body problem or a three body problem? And you made me think, you know what? We actually don't have a three body problem. We have a two body problem. We have two, you know, Asian dictators one in Putin and one in Xi, and you can throw in, you know, KJU in that mix. We have three Asian dictators that are, you know, they have some differences, but dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, you know, they're the main thing they care about is the preservation of the regime. That, that doesn't matter what nationality, what race, what it, you care about the preservation of the regime. And nuclear weapons exist to further the preservation of the regime. And so it's really just a, a two-body problem. And you can lump Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, you know, and if you want to, you know, throw in the Ayatollahs who may go nuclear sometime soon, so be it. But the simple fact is it's us versus them. Well, don't forget the us includes our allies, too. I, we, we often don't say that, but it's important that we include them. Well, our, well it might in, include one ally. Yeah, well, it's uh, the Brits. That's it. And they don't have that much. They have one boat at sea. That's it. So uh, to, to, to build on this, uh, it was something I wanted to mention as well, is that the Acton article you know, completely ignores the, the, the North Korea portion of this equation, the idea that they would sit idly by while, while U.S., China, and Russia exchange nuclear weapons is, I think, somewhat um, hard to believe. So we really have to start thinking about this, as you just mentioned, Adam, it really is an, an us against them. This really is a bipolar problem again. Um, it's just a bigger poll uh, that we're now facing. And, um, and so when we look at these issues, if, if the minimalists, like the authors of this piece, are hell-bent on never allowing um, more nuclear weapons than what we already have, then we have to start thinking about how do we survive them in such a way, right? So are we going to make them road mobile so that they're more survivable, as was recommended in this, in this Lawrence Livermore piece this past spring? Uh, Curtis, I have mean, to say, Curtis, I have to say, I was waiting for you to do it. I was going to bait yeah. you into that one, but you oh, beat yeah, me to it. That's I'm exactly baiting myself right. on you, this one. You guys and, are going the, into the wrong direction. It ain't about road mobiles or any of that. It's about the South Koreans and the Japanese going nuclear. That's okay, what that's the about. next thing. That's what I was getting to, and, and uh, is that if we're not going to do these things, then we need to get out of the way of allowing our allies who are first world responsible nations and allow them to proliferate and do what they need to do because we cannot do, we cannot say we're going to maintain a small arsenal and then extend deterrent promises in an umbrella to 35 plus nations around the world. And, 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 and then 
insists that they don't do anything to defend them. If we're not going to build extra capacity, then we need to let our allies build the capacity. If we're going to rely on them, like the national security strategy says, we're going to rely on allies and partners, then by God, let's rely on them and encourage them to arm up. And while we're, while we're fixing the language here, you say we want to let our allies proliferate. And since that's used to, as sort of a bludgeon over their heads, how about if we allow them to participate in the deterrence aspects of national and global deterrence? So I say that's participation, not proliferation. Now, that's an interesting uh, term, turn of phrase. If we rename it, which is what um, our friends on the other side of this argument generally do, uh, like in this article, right, we call it society society and infrastructure targeting, uh, then it feels better, right? It, it just feels better if we call it something different. So let's go with that. We'll call it nuclear participation by our allies, and uh, we'll allow them to, uh, you know, contribute to the pot. NIDS and, branded uh, it first, by the way. I just want to, as the president of this organization, NIDS branded that first. That's right. I feel an article coming on. I do too. And, and you know, the funny thing is in this article, <laughs> they don't talk about how, how do you ensure extended deterrence is still credible. That's something that That's never, right. and how do you make, how do you ensure that the South Koreans, Adam, the Japanese, the Australians, right. the, you know, you pick. That's an inconvenient. That's an inconvenient truth that has to be left out in this argument, uh, because they look, they count, right? Numbers mean something to them, and uh, and and it means something um, to a lot of folks as they are trying to write this comprehensive national power. The idea of comprehensive national power. Um, the Chinese use this definition or this terminology. Um, not only to measure their own power, but they're using it to measure their adversaries' power. Right. Uh, is that the general power of the nation state and combines various quantitative indices. Well, why don't we think that known cones are part of those quantitative industry ind- indices that they are using to measure our comprehensive national power? Yeah. I mean, we're at that point, unfortunately, where we got to wrap it up. So, Jim, why don't you give us your final thoughts? Well, good. Yeah. And uh, for by the way, for those of our listeners that don't see our LinkedIn uh, um, teaser every week, uh, I want to let you know I'm sporting my fall NIDS uh, uh, sportswear. So uh, just so you know that we are, you know, we are cool guys that get out in the cold and uh, we'll keep doing this all throughout winter. But uh, this article, so speaking of winter, speaking about cold, this this article sort of heated me up to look at something a little differently because every time we see something like this, uh, an article like this, that doesn't produce the detailed facts and forces you into a corner, it makes us not think strategically. I want to think strategically. I want to think broadly. And the number one thing for us, and I know you heard, uh, the listeners heard from Adam and Curtis and I all saying, well, we probably need more missiles, not because we want to start a war. It's the exact opposite. We want to prevent war. and, And the way you prevent war is you produce an argument, as Curtis will say, in such a way that the adversary is fearful of starting something. And then you don't start it. If you don't start it, then it doesn't happen. That's the way it should happen. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. So with that, 
Curtis, final thought. Um, oh, yeah, Curtis wants to make a thought. final final. I have a final thought too, final. you know. Yeah, so my <laughs> final thought, you know, again, I want to just jump on Adam's idea here. Arms racing uh, is is a good thing. Um, and if we're going to, if we're fearful of arms racing, then you should already be afraid of what the Chinese and the Russians are doing because they've been racing for years and we're just getting out of the blocks. So I don't want to hear any of this that, you know, we are arms racing or that we're creating an arms race. Nations behave on their own, in their own best national interest. The other thing I'll say is, is while I, I thank, um, Glasner, Acton and Fetter for this article. Uh, because it was a lot of fun to to read and debate here. I'm thankful that it's behind the paywall of the foreignaffairs.com because fewer people will be able to read this stuff <laughs> um, and and get fooled um, by this kind of thing because this is I think it's kind of dangerous. So I'm I'm glad it will be uh, it won't be read by too many folks. Well, I'll I'll just add one final thought, and that is you know I was having a talk with Mark Schneider. Uh, for many folks, you know, Mark Schneider, he's one of the, the best, right. best rush analysts out there. And one of the things he says is that he thinks that the IC has fundamentally underestimated Chinese arms. What is and the IC? The, Adam? the, inter, the, uh, intelligence community. Oh, and, you. and, um, also that he thinks that the Russians have already, I mean, they just, you know, they just suspended New Start, but we, they haven't been participating in New Start for three and a half years. So he thinks that they've already broken out of New Start, and he thinks that they probably have at least twice as many warheads as we do. And he thinks that when it comes to theater and you know the theater capabilities, which they have twelve different systems, that they have you know a minimum of two thousand. And probably 6,000. So the, you know, the Russians, and they have the ability to produce 1,000 pits per year. We can't even produce 80. So we can't produce new weapons. So we very well may, in a very short time, it won't be, you know, a combined Russian and Chinese twice hours. It may be five, 10 times hours. And there comes a point where they can put four or this is why operations matter. If you can put four or six warheads on every potential, you know, nuclear, you know, ICBM, for example, you can take out the, you know, really, if you think about bombers, all you got to hit is, you know, you've got to hit two really only two facilities that hold the nuclear weapons that would then eventually be loaded onto the bombers. And you can destroy those with a few nuclear weapons. You can wipe out the bomber force with conventionals. And then let's suppose that the Russians are effectively able to target ballistic missile submarines. You know, they can track them out of port and they can strike them with the torpedo or whatever. You can really you can destroy the U S nuclear arsenal. The nation can be laid bare. Very, very, you know, it's, it's not the cold war anymore. Technology has put us at significantly greater risk and has made the security of the arsenal, you know, which these guys seem to take for granted. And so I just, you know, the argument is it's a, you know, it's a very optimistic one. 
but it's certainly <laughs> not one that I think would bear good fruit for the United States. So, all right. I took my uh, prerogative. It's time to wrap this up. So, of course, we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.